Hello, and welcome back to the AUA University podcast. In this podcast, we will move right ahead and discuss the treatment sequencing in CRPC. This content was prepared by Dr. Charles Ryan and is presented by Dr. Tanya Dorf. Um, so we're going to look at some ways of sequencing the agents that Dr. Kaibel just uh, introduced to you about how to use these practically uh, one after the other. And uh, just a disclosure, these slides were put together by Chuck Ryan, who unfortunately couldn't be here today. So taking a, a step back just for a moment, making sure we're all on the same page, who qualifies as castration resistant? They need to have testosterone level that's less than 50. Uh, so we t uh, typically will check testosterone levels as we're checking PSA to make sure we know where our patients are. Sometimes there's testosterone breakthrough when someone's on LHRH therapy, and if their PSA is rising in that setting, they're actually not castration resistant. Uh, for a progressive patient where we're going to be ready to start a treatment, we want to see consecutive rises in PSA uh, at least a week or two apart and reaching an absolute value of two. So we're typically not starting therapy when someone's PSA has gone from 0.05 to 0.08 um, to 0.1, right? Most clinical trials are asking for a more significant level of PSA progression before they'll define them as uh, ready for a new treatment. However, that's not true if there's any radiographic progression. So if someone's having new bone lesions appear or soft tissue progression, um, so you may not use resist in your own practice, but it is helpful, I find, sometimes to look at a scan when a lymph node's gone from 15 millimeters to 18 millimeters and to try to use that resist framework of a 20% overall growth in disease signifying a significant amount of progression um, to look at how much change there's really been and whether we need to switch treatment. Symptomatic progression has traditionally been used as one of the indicators to start a new treatment, but it can be tricky, and so it may not be enough to diagnose castration-resistant prostate cancer. You probably want to also have some kind of radiographic or PSA progression. This is a, a classic slide describing the natural history of prostate cancer, where we often start with local disease, and then we get a good response to androgen deprivation, and then here's where we start to get castration resistant. But you'll see that there's some incomplete overlap in, in terms of when someone becomes symptomatic, when someone becomes metastatic, and when someone becomes castration resistant. So everyone's individual prostate cancer journey can look a little bit different. And you can have someone who's castration resistant and not yet metastatic. So there are many possible ways to use our different agents that we've just looked at. And now we're starting to use them earlier in the castration sensitive space. So our traditional pathways might have started in the CRPC, and we might have started with either Abby or Enza, or we might have started with docetaxel and then sequenced one after the other. Uh, but this is changing, and so there's almost an infinite number of ways you can use these drugs in sequence. And so we're going to try to help you sort out some things you can use to choose one or the other. One thing that we don't know is what the effect of that early chemotherapy will have. So our castration-resistant patient now, if they've had the charted type therapy, you saw the New England Journal publication from Chris Sweeney, uh, we don't know how that person's going to react to all of our subsequent lines of therapy, and that does complicate the picture. 
So whereas a low volume metastatic patient um, doesn't seem to benefit from upfront docetaxel and will be treated with other strategies, these high volume patients who had that really strong survival advantage from using the six doses of docetaxel upfront, these two patients might essentially have a different sort of disease state when they reach castration resistance. So in the charted trial, high volume was defined as four or more bone metastases with one outside of the axial skeleton or the presence of visceral metastases. Sometimes patients ask us how long they're going to live, and that's really a tough question to answer. It may be useful to know that there are a couple of tools out there that can help stratify because not every castration-resistant prostate cancer patient has the same prognosis. Susan Hallaby put together this nomogram from a number of different clinical trial data sets and showed that you could stratify out a median survival ranging from 18 months to more than 48 months. And this is the list of factors that you would look at uh, and the points, so it's a little bit complicated, but if you have the time to sit th and work through this, you'll be able to better give a sense to your patient of what to expect. Chuck has gone through the Cougar 302 study, the abiraterone in the chemotherapy-naive population, and created what looks to be maybe a simpler way to prognosticate. So taking your pain index, a little bit of pain versus more, um, as well as their alkaline phosphatase, their LDH. Uh, so sometimes we, we forget that LDH is a very, very good tumor marker in metastatic prostate cancer. And then also looking at the um, number of bone metastases. So here the, the cut point was more than 10 or less than 10. And if you give a point for each of those, zero points is good prognosis. And you'll see that their median survival is over 40 months. If you have one point, you're intermediate with a median survival of 27 months. And if you have two or more points, then you have a poorer prognosis with a median survival of less than 18 months. So this is perhaps an easier tool to implement in your own practice um, when patients are asking that very difficult question. So as we saw earlier, the NCCN guidelines uh, present a broad choice of agents. They're not very prescriptive. They leave a lot of room for clinical judgment. But one of the major decision nodes that we do have is the presence or absence of visceral metastases. So if you have visceral metastases at CRPC, theoretically, if you're not chemotherapy pretreated, then abiraterone falls out as an option because those patients were not allowed into Cougar 302. And also radium-223 comes out of the list. Uh, so there's actually um, therapeutic decision-making that happens from getting that CAT scan and seeing whether there's visceral involvement or not. But otherwise, uh, they leave it very wide open. They give you the level of evidence, as Dr. Keibel described to you, and then leave a lot of it to your own individual choice. The presence of visceral metastases is not only important for choosing the right therapeutic option, but it also is significant for prognosis. So your patients with lymph node-only metastatic pattern have a much better overall survival than patients with bone metastases, and the lung group falls similarly. And we all probably have seen this in our practices. The ones with the liver metastases tend to have the most aggressive course.
So the underlying tenet in treating castration-resistant prostate cancer is to understand that it is not resistant to androgens. It's actually hypersensitive to them. The androgen receptor remains an extremely important target. And that is why uh, we have the drugs like abiraterone and enzalutamide targeting those pathways. So in fact, if you look at men who have died from castration-resistant prostate cancer and biopsy their tissue, you will find that the majority of them have very strong androgen receptor expression. Here's the immunohistochemical picture, and here's a plot showing that at the earlier phases, you actually don't have nearly as much androgen receptor as in the end-stage sort of castration-resistant setting. So we have two options that target this specific alteration. One is abiraterone, which is uh, re reducing the production of the ligand, and patients are often fascinated when I tell them that the cancer actually upregulates CYP17 and is learning to make its own testosterone. Uh, the enzalutamide blocks the receptor, as we heard earlier. So which one is better? Well, that's the million-dollar question, but we don't have an answer. Let me preface all of what's following by saying that right now they're equally good options. This was a retrospective study and so please take all of this data with all the caveats that this is not level one. In fact, it's a little bit biased. It's a very small sample, and the majority had abiraterone followed by enzalutamide. A smaller number had enzalutamide followed by abiraterone. But you know, people are interested to know, is there a better sequence? So in this retrospective study, it appeared that there was a slightly better progression-free survival for the sequence of ABI followed by ENZA, but the overall survival was not different. Again, these are retrospective, very small numbers, and in no way definitive. But here's what I think is interesting. Medical oncologists love waterfall plots, so this is a PSA change. Everyone sort of starts at zero, and if you go down, PSA is dropping. If you go up, PSA is rising. So on the left, we have the initial response to abiraterone, and you'll see that most people will have a significant PSA drop. The red lines that are superimposed are the subsequent response to enzalutamide. And you'll see that some people who respond to ABI will then respond to ENZA, and some people who don't respond to ABI will respond to ENZA. So prior response of one agent does not tell you whether they will respond to the next agent. And you see the same thing on the other side with the enzalutamide graph. Enzalutamide first, almost everyone has some kind of PSA decline. You have some who will then respond when they get their next line of therapy with abiraterone, uh, but you have some who didn't respond who will respond to the second agent. So right now we don't have any sort of clinical or molecular tool that will tell us who falls into which part of these graphs. So again, um, overall, there's some potential uh, progression-free difference, but no difference in overall survival for the sequence that came out of that paper. Here's a little bit higher level of evidence. So this was a prospective randomized trial that was presented at ASCO this year by Kim Chi, asking that question. We are going to randomize patients to abiraterone followed by ENZA or ENZA followed by abiraterone and try to see who does better with a primary endpoint related to PSA, which is not a perfect endpoint, but also looking at time to uh, more significant progression. 
So they were sort of asking the question, is there a, a better way uh, to get your best shot first? And the study was negative. So again, we have nothing that says that one strategy, one sequence is better than the other. You'll see that the time to progression is about seven and a half months, whether you started with Abby and went to Enza or whether you started with Enza and went to Abby. And this again is level one evidence. Um, that seven and a half months is really short, right? In the previous studies that you were seeing, the average time to progression when it's their first treatment is much longer. So this was after the switch to the second agent, but there was no difference. So then how do we choose? If we, don't, if we can't tell our patient drug X is better than drug Y, why would we choose one versus the other? So we base it on clinical factors for right now. Uh, so one thing is the abiraterone comes with prednisone, as you heard about earlier, to offset the mineralocorticoid excess. And so my patients with diabetes, especially those who have sort of fragile control, I'm gonna prefer the enzalutamide for them as their first drug. It's not that I won't use the abiraterone, but if I can use them in either sequence, I'm gonna have them spend more time without the prednisone. On the other hand, patients who are very fatigued or who have lost a lot of muscle strength, who have fallen, those patients should do better on abiraterone because enzalutamide has that risk of muscle weakness, fatigue, and falls. Um, aside from that, the edema, really, you can get with either agent. Uh, CHF, though, I have seen CHF exacerbations with the abiraterone plus prednisone. So again, it's not that you would never use the drug, it's that you might choose it uh, first versus second. One thing that is more of an absolute contraindication is seizures. So if you have a patient who's had seizures or head trauma where they're at risk for seizures, then that's actually uh, someone who was excluded from all of the enzalutamide trials. So even though the steroids, the prednisone that we give with the abiraterone should not be super physiologic, it's just replacing what is no longer being made by the adrenals, you actually will get some patients who are a bit sensitive who get some Cushingoid changes or who are having difficulty sleeping or difficulty with glucose control. And you should know that in the upfront studies with abiraterone, the stampede and the latitude that were just presented, they gave five milligrams once a day. Whereas in the CRPC setting, we've traditionally used five milligrams twice a day. But because we now have these large data sets using the five milligrams once a day, I think you can feel very comfortable in manipulating the amount of prednisone that you're giving to your abiraterone patients to try to avoid some of the prednisone side effects. So this is an um, analysis from one of the Cougar studies showing that earlier use of abiraterone, you get more out of it. And this seems to be a recurring theme with all of the agents, right? We moved docetaxel up front and we saw more bang for our buck. We move abiraterone up front, we see that we get more out of it. In the CIP-T studies, the uh, Cipulusal, they also show that patients who got it with lower disease burden or sort of earlier do better. So I don't think this is unique, uh, but I think it does compel us to try to treat patients not extremely early. Um, we don't want to be treating patients where their PSA's gone from 0.05 to 0.08, right? But not to wait too long either. In visceral metastases, abiraterone was studied in the post-docetaxel setting. 
So there are level one evidence that a visceral metastasis patient can get this drug. Um, you can see the overall survival is definitely improved. So that's sort of a, a common misconception that once you have visceral metastases, you really have to use chemotherapy. That's not true. Our androgen-targeted agents both work in the setting of visceral metastases of CRPC as well. So here's the quartile data for abiraterone. And again, the bottom line is that while everyone benefits, that patients in the quartile with lower disease volume, and here PSAs, uh, imperfect surrogate, um, the hazard ratio is stronger when you're using the drug earlier, so you're getting essentially more out of it. So here's a summary of the question of abiraterone versus enzalutamide. Which drug do we choose for someone who's chemotherapy naive with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer? Um, remembering that the abiraterone does require prednisone, so that may be one way that you choose. Uh, we also will need to do monitoring. So patients who are uh, traveling a lot and can't come in for monitoring uh, may not be great candidates to start on abiraterone. If there's visceral disease, then they probably shouldn't be started on abiraterone. It was only the enzalutamide pre-chemotherapy trial that included those patients and showed a survival advantage. We're not supposed to compare head-to-head -head across two different clinical trials, but that's to some extent what this table is presenting. And just to get a ballpark sense, um, the, the side effect profile is not significantly different. The risk of grade three or four, meaning more serious adverse events, is similar. The response rate is similar progression-free survival and overall survival are similar. So there's really nothing here that says one drug is better than the other. And as you've seen, we don't have anything yet that says one sequence is better than the other. Importantly, to have your patient access the benefit of these medications, we need to remember to continue them even in the face of a rising PSA. So this is a very nice example of someone starting on abiraterone or enzalutamide, they respond, and then out around one year, you start to see the PSA rising. But the patient looks good, they feel good, their scans aren't changing. This is not an indication to switch treatment. On both the PREVAIL and the Cougar trials, patients were continued beyond PSA progression. They were only switched when they had symptomatic progression or radiographic progression. And so you'll see this patient lasts three and a half years with the rising PSA, and we believe this is part of how patients had that survival advantage, was by staying on the drug, similar to how we use our LHRH therapy. When PSA is rising on LHRH, we continue it because it is controlling some component of the disease, even though one component may have broken through and is growing, we believe that they will progress more rapidly if we just release that LHRH uh, agonist or antagonist therapy. So maybe you can think about it similarly in this context. When we're just starting to see a little PSA rise, doesn't mean all hope is lost. We're still controlling the bulk of the cancer and there's just some of the cancer that's now starting to progress. So uh, you can see three major categories of how patients progress. This is from Howard Scher. You do get those patients who get abiraterone or enzalutamide and just progress right through. 
And you do get patients who have a long suppressed PSA. And he describes uh, what he calls these drifters, uh, like the case we just saw, where PSA goes down but starts to rise, but it rises slowly. So if you're checking every month or so the PSA, uh, for someone who's going to progress, they're usually progressing by 12 weeks, whereas the ones who will drift have had a pretty good PSA decline and have a relatively uh, stable or very slightly elevated PSA from Nader at 12 weeks. Another interesting question arises then, if I'm telling you that we continue these drugs beyond PSA progression because they're still controlling some portion of the cancer, then maybe we should continue these drugs beyond PSA progression even when we're ready to go on to our next line of therapy the way we do with LHRH. So that's the question that was addressed by the PLATO study, which was just presented at ASCO by Dr. Attard this year. He took patients who were getting enzalutamide, and when they were ready for a new treatment, they were randomized to either continue the enzalutamide and add abiraterone, or to swap out the enzalutamide for a placebo and essentially switch to abiraterone. So the question of, at progression, should we add or switch? The result, the primary endpoint, was negative. There was no benefit to continuing that enzalutamide at the time you were thinking about changing treatment. So the paradigm remains that we would switch rather than add. There are obviously a lot of unanswered questions. We don't know whether this holds true if we're doing a treatment like docetaxel or radium, but at least for now, we can say that with Abby and Enza, probably no benefit from continuing them together when you've progressed on the first agent. There are a lot of studies that are ongoing asking the questions of combination. So for instance, there was an intergroup CTSU study of Enza plus Abby upfront versus Enza upfront for MCRPC. So asking the question of combination versus single sequential, they're assuming that the standard arm will cross over to abiraterone at some point. Uh, that has fully accrued over a year ago, and those mature results hopefully can be presented in the next year or two, which should give us some signal about whether combination would be synergistic or superior. And there are similar studies of abiraterone with radium or enzalutamide with radium. I think that will really help us understand what to do in this kind of a setting. But for now, PLATO is really the only study we have looking at this question. And for now, even though we continue our drug beyond PSA progression, when we're not switching treatment, when we are ready to make a therapeutic change, you can go ahead and stop. So there's going to be a shift in our typical patient that we're seeing because of the use of these upfront therapies based on charted latitude and stampede. But this is Chuck's description of a typical chemo-naive CRPC patient um, where most patients don't have pain, most patients are lower volume. That may shift when we get to a patient who has had some upfront intensified therapy. When they become CRPC, we expect that these characteristics could look quite different and our treatment paradigms for those patients may actually need to change. Patients often tell me that they view chemotherapy as the last resort, the end of the line, 
And I think it's really important if you're treating advanced prostate cancer patients to explain to them that chemotherapy is just a tool like any other. It's a life-extending therapy that in essence is no different than abiraterone or enzalutamide or radium. These are all tools that we use in sequence. We're not hoping to never get to one of them. We're hoping to use them in the optimal sequence to maximize cancer control and quality of life. And there's definitely a central role for chemotherapy in that context. So I like the way Chuck has uh, placed the docetaxel in between some of the other treatments. That's actually how I use uh, these treatments in sequence. Uh, because we know there is some overlapping mechanism of cross-resistance between abiraterone and enzalutamide, so there's no level one data, this is all expert opinion, but I do like, for someone who's progressing on Abby or Enza, to give them that docetaxel, or sometimes I put radium in there as a way to hopefully uh, suppress the more resistant clone, and with the hope that then when we switch to the second agent, the Enza or the Abby in sequence, that maybe we'll get more bang for our buck. You saw that going from one to the other, we don't get quite as much out of the second drug. We can't yet tell you whether doing it this way is any better, but it's a strategy that I like. Now I have plenty of patients who say, I don't want chemotherapy, and it's fine. I have patients who sequence directly from Enza to Abby or Abby to Enza. I also like that Chuck has CYP-T here in the earlier box. I think the best way to use immunotherapy, and the, currently the only immunotherapy we have for prostate cancer is cipulosal T. I think the best way to use it is early. So I often try to sneak it in during that time period when there's CRPC with the slow rising PSA without symptoms, and get that six weeks of treatment in, and then by the time we're seeing radiographic or symptomatic progression, we're ready to jump in with the ENSA or ABI. But we know that that CYP-T is gonna be helping us uh, with this patient for many years to come. So I think uh, there's not one optimal way to use the agents in the boxes. And now that some patients are getting the docetaxel up front, of course, everything's going to shift around. But I do like uh, sort of how he's organized the treatments in these boxes for now. Hopefully we can have some discussion around that later. We've talked about the fact that PSA should not be the sole indication for changing treatment. And it's pretty obvious when someone develops visceral metastases that it's time to change. It's pretty obvious if they get spinal cord compression or another skeletal-related event that it's time to change. But there's an emerging awareness that there are other symptoms that may indicate cancers progressing that are more subtle. So our patient may walk in, they're on their enzalutamide or their abiraterone, and they say, I'm doing fine. But if you start to ask them more questions, are you still golfing? Well, no, I gave up golfing because just, you know, this little ache in my hip or I just can't get through it. That could be a sign that the cancer's not well controlled enough. In the context of some other signs, maybe it's the LDH or the ALKFOS or the PSA that are going up, it doesn't have to be that they come in saying, Doc, I'm in more pain. The cancer progression can be more subtle. Sometimes it's a decline in the performance status. They're not going out as much as they used to. They're not doing their daily walk. Sometimes it's that they're just not sleeping as well. Um, and having not only the patient, but the significant other sometimes is helpful in elucidating those more subtle symptoms of cancer progression. Some of us feel that as patients are progressing on these advanced life-extending therapies, we're seeing more aggressive progression. 
almost like a small cell or neuroendocrine phenotype. And the West Coast Prostate Cancer Dream Team, of which Eric Small and Chuck Ryan are part of, are discovering that there is some potential truth to that, although it's not always neuroendocrine. So when someone's progressing with visceral metastases or really aggressively or with low PSA and explosion of, of bone metastases, you check the, the neuroendocrine markers, chromogranin A, neuron-specific enolase, and about 13% of CRPC patients are evolving in that direction. But we feel like we see more of it than that in our clinics. And in fact, they found this intermediate atypical classification where it's not a full small cell neuroendocrine spectrum, but it's no longer an androgen receptor kind of normal adenocarcinoma either. It's something in between. So hopefully we're going to hear more about what characterizes that group of patients and learn something about what therapies might be most appropriate in those settings. Right now, it's only pathologic and descriptive. It's not yet ready for therapeutic decision-making. Genomics, ultimately, should disrupt this whole sequencing question. The concept of individualized, personalized therapy is actually not so far away for prostate cancer, at least in terms of DNA repair. So we're now very aware that up to a quarter of patients with metastatic prostate cancer will have germline mutations in one of the DNA repair pathways that include BRCA and ATM. It's very common, common enough that there are people advocating that all men with metastatic prostate cancer should get checked. And at CRPC as well, there's a very high rate of finding alterations in DNA repair enzymes. What does this mean? Should we spend the money to sequence them? we're soon going to have treatments targeted at that pathway, right, the PARP inhibitors. So there was the New England Journal publication by Matteo showing that if you had one of those mutations in BRCA, ATM, or, or FENCA, a couple others, that you had an 88% response rate to Olaparib, a PARP inhibitor, and if you didn't have one of those, you had an 11% response rate. That's a pretty good predictive biomarker, um, and perhaps Evan will touch on this later in the future directions, but this ultimately, I think, will become part of that stratification. Right now, our big stratifier is visceral metastases, yes or no, but I think soon we will have more molecular-based ways of individualizing our treatment strategies. It turns out that androgen receptor is involved in DNA repair. There's crosstalk, so there's reason to believe that there could be synergy in targeting androgen receptor with one of our agents and DNA repair simultaneously. The androgen receptor is really so central to CRPC. Interestingly, it turns out that it not only predicts for PARP response, but having a DNA repair deficiency also seems to predict for response to androgen receptor-targeted therapy. This was a very interesting presentation by Maha Hussein at this year's ASCO. The study was looking at abiraterone alone or abiraterone with viliparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, and you would think that if you had the DNA repair deficiency, you would do better when you added the PARP inhibitor. But what they saw was that across the board, you just did better if you had the DNA repair deficiency, period, regardless of which treatment arm you were assigned to. So this suggests either that it's a prognostic general marker or that it factors into how you respond to androgen receptor-targeted therapy. So this is very interesting. We're not yet able to 
say what to do with your patients on the basis of it, but more and more of us are sending our patients tissue for, for genomic profiling. Sometimes you can do it in the context of a study where the study will pick up the fee, which is nice, um, but sometimes insurers will cover it as well. Aside from individual genotypes and mutations, there's also a movement towards subclassifying prostate cancer. Boy, is that long overdue, right? We know prostate cancer isn't one disease. We see it in how our patients do. Uh, so there's this movement to stratify based on basal and luminal. And you can see here that there is uh, quite a good differentiation in prognosis on this basis. Again, we're not yet ready to say that basals should get treated one way and luminals a different way, but this is where the field is evolving. So overall, androgen-receptor-targeted tar androgen therapy is very effective in castration-resistant prostate cancer. We have two major choices, avaratarone and zalutamide, that target the AR, and although there's some overlapping in resistance, we can use these drugs in sequence, and they can be effective. We don't yet know uh, or have a biomarker that we can check to tell us which drug to use. So right now, it's based on clinical characteristics, uh, but hopefully in the future, we'll have some more molecular ways of choosing treatment. Stay tuned for all of the combination studies that are out there being done now that may give us some information about whether using combinations will be superior to single sequential, but right now single sequential remains the standard paradigm. Um, and by monitoring not just PSA, but looking at the whole picture, looking at LDH as an important prognostic marker, and looking at symptoms that can be more subtle than just pain or skeletal-related event or radiographic progression, by seeing that progression and, and switching therapy and using all of our lines of available therapy for patients as appropriate, for now that's the best way that we can provide proactive and risk-adapted treatment. So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode of the AUA University podcast. Our podcast can be found on Google Play and Apple iTunes, as well as SoundCloud. If you have any suggestions, please send them to education at auanet.org. Until next time, thank you for listening.